Well, it's good to be back with you here. I guess you all know that I'm back because someone picks songs that no one else in the world knows. <laughs> I have to tell you an anecdote of a church I served in New Jersey, and we were all sitting around one Sunday school party, and I said to them, well, I don't really understand music, I just pick things on the basis of the words. And the organist turns to me and looks at me and says, we all know that. (laughs) This evening we go back again to Genesis and uh, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 35. Genesis chapter 35. Genesis chapter 35, and I will read the entire chapter. Listen now as God speaks to us in his word. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise, go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to, my, to, to God, to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called the name Alan Bakut. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padanaram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name, is Jacob, no long, your name is Jacob, no longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place from where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel, when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died. And when she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem, and Jacob set up a pillar there over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. 
Israel journeyed on, on and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come to your word this night, and we come with expectancy. You have given your word for the benefit of your people, and we claim this night to be yours, that we belong to you. And so we ask that as we look at this passage of scripture, that you will work in us and that you will enable us not only to understand it, but also to draw from it the very lessons that you intend for us to draw. And so we pray that you'll be at work in us, sovereign spirit, so that we can understand and apply your word to our lives. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at this chapter, we come basically in some ways to the end of the Jacob part of, these, of this passage, of, this, uh, of Genesis. Uh, we will see... Uh, Jacob a little bit more as we go along, but by and large, we are going to leave Jacob behind. And uh, it's interesting the way in which uh, Moses has organized the book of Genesis because he organizes it according to what he calls the generations. And if you go on into the next uh, chapter, you'll see the generations of Esau. And then in chapter 37, you'll see the generations of Jacob. And if you read on, you'll find that the generations of Jacob really have to do with Joseph. So we're coming to a conclusion in some ways with, uh, with the life of Jacob. And in this chapter, we have a number of different uh, things that are going on, some of which we might expect because they have gone on before, but others of the things that we see here just sort of jump out at us with no real warning at all from the context. So let's try to look at this text and let's look at it in kind of a way of geography. Let's look at before or on the way to, uh, to Bethel. Let's see what happens at Bethel and then let's see what happens after the, uh, uh, Jacob and his family leave Bethel. Uh, we, we don't know the manner in which God communicated with Jacob, but we do see from the text that he did uh, talk to him. And the point is that, that God comes to Jacob and he instructs him that he's supposed to leave Shechem and he's to go to Bethel. And when Jacob arrives in Bethel, the thing that he was supposed to do was to build an altar there. And God reminds Jacob that he had appeared to him before uh, when he was fleeing from his brother Esau. Bethel is a known quantity, a very important known quantity for, for Jacob. And we see this. Uh, we looked at this rather extensively when we studied the 28th chapter of Genesis. 
This is uh, the chapter, if you can remember, where either a ladder or a stairway, whatever you choose, went up to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And you may recall that when Jacob was there, he, he lay down and he put a stone under his head for a pillow. And then when he got up, he took the stone and he set it up. And that was a pillar. It was a reminder of things that had happened at Bethel. So when God comes to Jacob and tells him that he's to go to Bethel, the place that God had met with him when he was escaping from his brother, and he's to build an altar, Jacob knows about this. These things are all in his mind, and some of the things are really repeating, as we will see, what happened before there. Jacob orders all of those who are with him to get ready to go to meet God at Bethel. The preparations consist basically of two parts. One part is they're supposed to put away their foreign gods, and the other part is that they're supposed to purify them by one way in changing their clothes. We see this in verses 2 and then again in verse 4. We can only speculate about where the foreign gods came from. At least two, two uh, possibilities are there. One of them is, these are the gods that Rachel stole. These are the gods that she took from her dad. You may remember that story. The way in which she stole those gods from her dad, hid them in a camel saddlebag, sat on them while her dad came, and her dad never found them. So it's altogether likely some of these gods came from Laban, and they came by way of Rachel. The other probability of the way in which these gods came was that you'll recall after the rape of Dinah by Shechem that the Israelites, uh, Simeon and Levi, for example, killed all the people in the city of Shechem and the rest of the brothers came and they raided the place and they plundered the place. And no doubt part of the plunder was these gods. So, so the Israelites have these gods, some of them coming probably from Laban, some of them coming probably from uh, Shechem itself. Um, regardless of the source of these things, though, doesn't it strike you as kind of awful? <laughs> the people of God, the chosen ones of God, Jacob, Israel, they got foreign gods. They, they, these, these gods are there and a part of them. Now, I don't think they're just carrying them around as trinkets. I don't think that's at all what they're doing. I don't think that they're carrying them around and hoping someday they can find a buyer or a high bidder for them. I don't think that's the case at all. It's altogether likely not only did they have these gods, but they were using these gods. And our first reaction to this is probably to go, and it's right for us to go, it's terrible. It's an awful thing. One of the things that God has tried to demonstrate to his people throughout all of their history, in particular even in this early history, is there's one God and one God only. That's very clear. That's clear. That's one of the things that separated Abraham out. That's one of the things that, that characterized Isaac. And we would think that's one of the things that characterizes Jacob. And there is a sense in which we can scratch our head and say, how in the world did something like that come about? that these people had foreign gods. And while we scratch, we understand. While we puzzle over how idolatry can be a part of the people of God, the children of Jacob, Israel's Israelites, and then we think, mammon, greed, Paul says, 
is idolatry. <laughs> and all of a sudden, we understand. We understand clearly the manner in which false gods can come into the people of God and they can be a part of the people of God who are that small group that gathers on Sunday night at Trinity Church. And lo and behold, we understand how idolatry can become a part of the people of God. But as we look at this text even further, we have to notice other things that go on. Because it's striking what Jacob does with these gods. What does he do with them? He takes them and buries them under an oak tree. I don't know if you're struck by, by the kind of oddity of what happens there. And I can't imagine that Moses, when he wrote down this story, did not also remember what he wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 5. Let me read that to you. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. I wonder about Jacob. I wonder about him. God says, put away your false gods. And God also tells the people later that they're supposed to destroy all these false gods. And the reason why they're supposed to destroy all these false gods is so that these false gods don't get hold of them and lead them to worshiping false gods. And again, as I say that, I understand. I understand how it is that we want to put away the false gods but we don't want to put them away too far. We don't want them so that there's never any possibility of them being found again. I suspect that's what's going on with Jacob and that's what's going on with the Israelites. That yes, they're supposed to get rid of the false gods. Yes, they dare not go into the presence of this holy God, and this holy God that has been caring for Jacob and all of his family throughout all of the times, and as we'll see, continuing to do so. You don't dare go before him, worshiping false gods. And yet, we do, don't we? We do it. We may be here tonight after having contemplated how we will serve mammon or eros this very day. So when we look at this text, the oddity of it both grips us and then the terribleness of it is that we actually understand this. Why didn't they completely destroy those idols? But in addition to ridding themselves of foreign gods, the Israelites were to purify themselves. And this fitted in again with the presence of the people of Israel before, the, before God at Bethel. And, and you may remember that the Israelites received a similar command when God came to them on Mount Sinai. Look at uh, Exodus chapter 19, verse 10 and following from there. And there's speculation again about where, what, what are these clothes about? Now, why did they have to change their clothes? What, what was going on? And I think the speculation is probably true that a lot of these clothes were clothes that they got where? From the Shechemites. That they had plundered the city, and there they were, getting ready to go to Bethel, all decked out 
and their recently plundered outfits. And they're supposed to get rid of them because these outfits remind them and not only about their sin but also about the way in which Shechem and all about Shechem was directed toward another god. Uh, so these elements of consecration, ridding themselves of foreign gods and changing uh, their clothes, uh, were designed to impress upon Jacob and upon his uh, company the sacredness of their meeting together with the Lord. But not only are the people to be doing some things in terms of their purification, uh, but the text also tells us that God is busy at this time. Now you remember when we left Jacob the last time, that Jacob was worried about something. His, uh, his two sons had killed all the people, all the men in Shechem, and the rest of the sons had plundered Shechem, and Jacob's worry is, I'm going to stink to all those people around me, and they're going to come up here, and they can just kill me because I'm much smaller than they are. But God has not abandoned these people who have to be reminded not to worship false gods. He has not been abandoned because the text tells us that God brought some kind of terror on the people around about, some kind of terror. We don't know what that amounted to, but what it did do was to keep them from coming after Jacob. And so Jacob goes from Shechem to Bethel and he gets there because none of these people attack him. And it's no simple accident. It's not like the Canaanites were sitting around saying, when it's a good time for us to get back at Jacob. They were frightened of him, and the cause of that fright was because God was at work in them as well. And again, I, I hope that we, we take some, some comfort in understanding the nature and character of God as this terror falls upon the Canaanites. Jacob then arrives at Bethel. It's probably about a 40 miles, roughly that way, probably a couple of days walking with all the people and the cattle and goats and all that Jacob had. So it probably takes him at least two days to get there. And he goes there and he builds an altar. Jacob is obedient. God tells him, you go back to Bethel, the place where I met with you when you were escaping from your brother Esau. And when you get to Bethel, Jacob, I want you to build an altar. And an altar is built for one reason primarily, and that is so that worship can go on there. And so it was at Bethel that uh, Jacob had had that vision of the stairway. Now here's where the Lord promised to bring Jacob back to the land and to give him the blessings promised to his grandfather uh, Abraham and to his father Isaac. Uh, here's where Jacob made that profession. We read about it in ch chapter 28, verse 21. The Lord, Yahweh, shall be my God. And when he comes to this place, he once again makes that kind of a vow. He obeys the directions of the Lord that he gave to him at Shechem. But we're reading about this, then bingo, into the midst of the text, comes this statement that Deborah, the nurse of Rebekah, died. Now, if you're like I am, perhaps while I was reading that, you wondered, who is this Deborah? Where did she come from? What is going on here? Now, if you go back a little bit, you may find out uh, something of who uh, Deborah is. If you go back to, to chapter 24 of Genesis, verse 59, we read, this is uh, when Rebekah is being sent away to go back to become the wife of Isaac. In verse, 20, at verse 59 of chapter 24, we read, so they went away, Rebekah their sister and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. 
Note, we don't even have her name. And here comes this Deborah, and she dies. And not only does she die, but Jacob names the place so that people will remember about the death of Deborah. And we are wondering, what is going on? And again, I think all that I can do in front of you is perhaps speculate a little bit, but what it seems to me is that we see, again, the reaction of Moses, the author, to Rebekah. We don't know these things about Rebekah. We'll see later on if she dies. But we don't know things about Rebekah. You'll remember that after Rebekah came up with all of these shenanigans to deceive Isaac so that Jacob could get the blessing. She just sort of is erased. And it's my take that that erasure goes on. What Moses wants us to know is they're gone. He will show that Rebecca is gone because her nurse is dead. And he will also let the chapter, at the end of the chapter, tell us that Isaac is gone. But Rebecca's shenanigans were worthy of her not being mentioned. But in order for that all to have some kind of closure, Moses comes along and tells us that Rebekah's nurse has died and that she's buried there. And as far as Jacob is concerned, this is something that is crucially important. So we see this coming. At this point also, God renews his covenant with Jacob. And part of the renewal of the covenant is the promises were the reiteration of the change in Jacob's name. And again, you may look at this text and you may ask yourself, didn't we just go over this just a little bit ago? Wasn't that that dramatic time when, when Jacob wrestled all night with the angel of God and when he was, daylight is coming and the angel says, let me go, Jacob says, I'm not letting you go unless you bless me. And the angel touches him on the hip throws his hip out of socket and tells him, your name has been Jacob, but now your name is going to be Israel because you have wrestled with God and with men and you have succeeded, you have been victorious. Why in the world is God coming back to him and telling Jacob, your name used to be Jacob, now it's Israel, when just a little while before he had told him that his name was changed, just like he tells him in this passage. And again, my judgment that what is going on here is something that we see throughout the scriptures, is something we have often called covenant renewal. And a part of that is what's going on in this text, is my judgment that God is renewing his promises to Jacob. And a part of the promises to Jacob are that he's a different kind of person. As I argued before when we looked at this, it's, not my, it's my judgment that that wasn't Jacob's conversion at that point. But nonetheless, it was an important milestone in Jacob's life. And this milestone about this change that God had brought about him, a change of name, and particularly the meaning of that name from supplanter cheater, to wrestling with God and man and prevailing. And we may wonder, why does God repeat himself? Except those of you who come here the first Sunday of every month. And we do the same thing at the end of the service, don't we? We are reminded of what God does for us. And if you're like I am, you need that reminder. God in his kindness and his goodness deals with his people in this way and he recognizes 
the kind of weaknesses that we have. And he reiterates these things. And it's not only in this text does he reiterate the fact that Jacob's name has been changed to Israel, but he also reiterates all the things about the blessings that he has given to him. And, and the interesting thing in this text is if you look at it, it goes back even to, to the time of Adam. Be fruitful and multiply, he tells him. It goes back, too, to, 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 to uh, Abraham and God's first encounters with Abraham. Uh, back, for example, in chapter 17, uh, where God uh, uh, institutes circumcision. And in this text, how does God identify himself to Jacob? As El Shaddai, God Almighty. He wants Jacob to recognize that all the time he's been with him. And why, why, why is he wanting him to recognize? Because in chapter 28, when Jacob was met by God with the stairway to heaven, when Yahweh came to him, what did he tell him? I will be with you and I will bring you back here again. And where is Jacob now? He's back at Bethel. He's back at that place where he took his stone pillow and put it up. It's back at that place where he said that Yahweh will be my God. It's in all of these repetitions, in all of these reiterations of the covenant that God is reminding us, reminding Jacob again and again of the blessings that he has given to them. And again, we understand why God does this, because Jacob needed this. There's the evidence all through Jacob's life that he needed reminders by God that God was with him, God was caring for them, God was overseeing him. And again, brothers and sisters, we, we clearly understand that. It makes sense to us that God has to remind us of these things. One of the reasons you're here tonight is to worship God. But another reason why you're here tonight is in the midst of your worship to remind yourself and together we remind each other that our God is a faithful God. It's not just that we came here tonight, but God came here also. <laughs> He came here to listen to you praise him. Just like Jacob built an altar so that he could worship him. We've come here to worship. And God hears us as we worship him. But he also came here this night to speak to you by the power of his spirit in his heart so that you will remember the things that are given to you. And so he reiterates to Jacob all of these promises that he has made to them before. He establishes these promises. He, he adds some things that were there before that he had with Jake, with Abraham. It tells him that uh, kings will come from his, his uh, loin, from his body, and the same promise that he had given to Abraham, not one that he had given to uh, Isaac. And um, there, there's a sense in which the a commitment God made to Jacob in chapter 28 now is fulfilled, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And a part of that promise was to bring him back to Bethel. Now he's back there again. And so Jacob once again sets up a stone and remembers who God is. So we've seen the things that happened before Bethel. We've seen that some of the things that happened at Bethel. But the story also goes on and tells us about other things that happened after Bethel. And the journey from Bethel to Bethlehem is where tragedy struck. Probably one of the harder things for uh, 
Jacob to endure in his life because Rachel goes into childbirth and then dies after a hard labor, as the text tells us. And as Rachel was dying, the midwife tried to comfort Rachel. And she says to Rachel that she's having another son. And you wonder just how this is going to help Rachel very much at this point. But remember, the other son, the one that she already had, was called what? Joseph. If this was quiz time, I could ask you, and what does Joseph mean? May I have another? And so the nursemaid tries to comfort Rachel by showing her that God is fulfilling and keeping the promises, the desires that she had that she might have another son, and so this son is born. And we don't know how Rachel reacted to this. Rachel names the child Ben-Oni. Ben-Oni could mean the son of my strength. It's much more likely that it sounds like the son of my suffering, the son of my difficulty. And that's what Benjamin is. But when, 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 when Jacob comes, he changes the name of the child. And it's odd. I think we ought to pay attention to that because all the other children have been named by the, by the mother or by the supervisor of their handmaidens. But this time, Jacob changes the name, and he calls his name Ben-Yamin. And, and this name means basic, the son of my right hand. Somebody argues that it may mean the son of the south. I think that's not very apt. But it's the son of my right hand. And if you're a Bible student, you know somebody who's at the right hand is an important person. That's a place of honor. It's a place of honor that uh, we find eventually that the Lord Jesus himself sits at the right hand of God. We find that. So, so, so he gives this, this child this, this wonderful name. But in the midst of all of this, Rachel dies. This is the woman that he served 14 years for. This is the woman that he tried as best he could to always care for her. This is the woman whose children were always prized in a special way. This is the woman that with Jacob has led to all kinds of messes in his family and messes that will continue. If we look at the life of Joseph and all that comes after that, we'll see again how all of these come about. But she's buried there. Jacob remembers that place, and he puts a pillar there as a means of remembrance. And Rachel's death picks up in other parts of the scriptures. Jeremiah, for example, in chapter 31, um, remembers this place. And in a poetic way, he uses a poetic device of seeing Rachel weeping over the tribes that have already gone into exile, uh, the tribes of Joseph, namely Ephraim and Manasseh, those that we know of as the northern kingdom. And then Matthew in the New Testament picks up on this very same thing, and he claims that that when Herod killed all the young babies, young boys in, in Bethlehem, that that is a fulfillment of the Jeremiah passage, which is referring back to this place where Rachel died. So we have this. But not only does Jacob experience the harshness of the death of his favorite wife, but also the tragedies in his life mount up when he camps near Edar, and Reuben, his firstborn son, commits adultery with his concubine, Bilhah. 
Remember, she's the maid of Rachel, the one that Rachel gave on behalf of, uh, on her behalf, so that she could have children. Because she said to Jacob, "You don't give me children, I'm going to die." And Jacob said, "Who am I? I'm not in the place of God." So she gives him Billah, and Billah has children. They are listed, as we saw in this text tonight. And, and certainly, when we look at what Reuben does, there's lust and there's evil there. To go in and to have sex with the handmaiden of your father, something that the scriptures in the the law condemn so very clearly, something that's just wrong. But we see that, that, that that, that, that lust is going on there. But many speculate, and I think rightly, that to take the concubine of your father was a statement of the usurpation of your father's authority. This is not a a unique situation in the scriptures. Uh, What did Absalom do after David left and left some of his wives behind? He had sex with them right up on on top of the palace so everybody could see it. A usurpation of the authority of David. And I think maybe that's what's going on here when, Jake, when Reuben commits this uh, horrendous act with Bilhah. The other thing that may be going on also is in some ways he wants to defame Bilhah because the one thing he doesn't want to happen is that Bilhah will now replace Rebecca, uh, replace Rachel, and Leah will still have her lowest place on the totem pole. A bit of speculation, but maybe something also that goes on in here. But as we read this text, are you struck again about Jacob? His own son commits adultery with one of his handmaidens, one of his wives, and Jacob knows it, but doesn't say anything. This is the Jacob that when his daughter was raped, He didn't seem to do anything. He just said, if you get revenge against the the Shechemites, I'm going to stink and people are going to come after me. And Jacob really doesn't address this until chapter 49 where the blessings come and Reuben is not given the first place that would belong to him. So it is a strange situation with Jacob and Jacob again seems to fail in doing those things that we would expect. The text comes to a conclusion then with the burial of, of Isaac. So the generations of Isaac are over. He's buried, lived to be 180 years old. He, he's buried by whom? By Jacob and by Esau. Now, we don't have any idea what is going on between Jacob and Esau all this time. You remember where we last left them? Remember what Jacob did? Again, if this was quiz night, I could really give you a hard one. You remember what Jacob did? He said, Esau, you go on ahead. Esau, you don't have to leave any of your men with me so I can make it to back to the, uh, with you. I'm going to see you in Seir. And then what did he do? Seir is down here. Jacob went up there to Shechem. The last thing that we have records of these two is that Jacob lies to his brother. Don't know what happened. I mean, it's a fascinating thought. Only people who go to seminary and teach at seminary sit around thinking about these kind of things, but it's fascinating what went on. But nevertheless, whatever happened, whatever went on, when they came, they did come back together and they bury their father, and it all works out. 
Now, as we look at this text, we, 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 we are fine. It's strange. It's filled with things that just seem to pop, pop, pop. No real arguments or anything like that that comes together here. But um, when, when, uh, when we, we look at this text, it does seem to me there are certain things that we can do to try to make sense of the end of the era of Jacob. And one of the things that we see in this text is that when it starts, Jacob is living in Shechem. That's where we meet him in this passage. That means he's almost to Bethel, but not quite. And it's my judgment that pretty well describes Jacob, doesn't it? He's sort of there, almost, but not quite. We're going to come back and look at this. But while he's in Shechem, Jacob and his family find themselves in a mess. We've already talked about the way in which the people could have gotten revenge on them. But in the midst of this, God does what? He shows almost Jacob that he's always faithful. Jacob, in numerous ways, has not kept up with the faithfulness of God. He's not done that. Jacob was told by Yahweh in chapter 28, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And now he's promised. He's fulfilled that promise. He's brought him back to Bethel. Yahweh has continued to be faithful. He's kept the Canaanites from attacking them. He's brought them back to Bethel. All of these things are there. He's arrived at Bethel because of God's faithfulness. And it was a faithfulness that did not, Jacob did not deserve. He's, he's Jacob who almost obeyed fully. He trusted God, but he also continually took matters into his own hands. And again, we look at Jacob and we can condemn Jacob. And we ought to rightly condemn Jacob. Jacob fails in many of these ways. But the irony of it all is, brothers and sisters, we just understand Jacob. It just fits. We understand what it is for God to be faithful and for his people to almost obey him in the way in which he calls on us. And God's faithfulness is seen most clearly over against uh, the weak but real faith of Jacob. As we look at Jacob's shortcomings, it's obvious that he trusts God. He, he believes when God says that the younger, that the older shall serve the younger. He believes that. He believes that God is going to get him back from Paddan Aram back to Bethel. He believes that. He follows God along. Uh, but he doesn't quite do all that he's supposed to do. And as I look at Jacob, he reminds me of uh, the way in which Paul describes God over against his people. Uh, you may remember in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, uh, Paul says, If we are faithless, referring to God, then he says, He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Surely if Jacob heard those words, he'd have said, God doesn't deny himself. He's faithful. Even when we are unfaithful. 
Do you take comfort in those words the way in which I take comfort in those words? That God will not deny himself. He's the God who has promised to be always with us. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And he does not deny himself. Even someone like Jacob, even someone like we are, God continues to take care of us. I find comfort in those words, and my suspicion is that Jacob would have also. We can also take comfort in the way in which God carries out the promises of his covenant to the patriarchs. Uh, We may miss the point of the repetition of the promises that Yahweh makes to Jacob, but we need to remember that these are the promises of the covenant first offered to Abraham, then offered to Jacob. God not only makes these promises, but he keeps them. And we actually live in the era when we see those promises fulfilled. In this passage, I mentioned before that there's something added to those promises that skipped the generation in the promises that were made to Isaac. He promised Abraham, God promised Abraham that he would, he would bring kings from the loins of Abraham, and he promises Jacob the same thing. And this promise came to fruition through the tribe of Judah, son of Jacob. And the great king of the Old Testament was, came from Israel, came from Jacob, came from Judah. It was King David. We know that. But we know it even better. Because it's not just King David, but it is, as the New Testament tells us, King David's greater son who came and fulfilled that all of the things that were problems for Jacob, all of the almost obedience, all of the outright disobedience, all of the failures that Jacob had, but not only the failures that Jacob had, but all the failures that we also have, are taken care of for all of those who trust in great David's greater son, who trust in the Lord Jesus. We were told this morning, and I think it's important to tell you once again, That Jesus, that when he died upon the cross, he died to take away the sins of his people. He bore for them the punishment that they deserve. Jacob knows that full well because he's entered the promised land. And I can tell you tonight that if you trust that Jesus, you will also enter that promised land, that promised land that prefigures for us what heaven is. That's what's given to us. As we look at this guy, Jacob, as we see him for us, we see all kinds of things. And we will see all kinds of consequences of of, of Jacob's wrongdoing. And we will see it in his dysfunctional family and the terrible things that will happen in just a few chapters ahead of us. One of his sons will be sold in slavery by his other sons. And that's sort of a relief because they didn't murder him. That's what happens. That's what happens because of Jacob's sin and wrongdoing. That's the kind of things that come. And we see Jacob's life, Israel's life, telegraphing all that we see unfolding in the rest of the Old Testament, of the people of God who who were faithful. They believed. They trusted. They used the sacrificial system. They trusted. And then they didn't. And they failed. 
And again, we, we understand that. But we understand it much better than they did. Because we know, as I've already said to you, the end of the story. Kings came from the loins of Jacob. And a king came, and his name was Jesus. And he died upon the cross to make you his subject. Jacob sent a king, and now you're his servant. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's our king. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we rejoice in your word. We rejoice, O Lord Jesus, in your ascending to your throne, that you are the great king, that you rule in our lives. We acknowledge and confess to you, O Lord, even when we believe we fail you so often, and yet you never fail us. And we know one day, O sovereign Savior, we will stand before you, cleansed. We don't know what we will be like, O Lord Jesus, but we do know that we will be like you, and we long for that day. Help us, O Lord, to strive to see some of that in the lives that we live now. And we make this prayer in your name. Amen.